Episode 169 of the PJ Archive is an interview I did with the great English illustrator, cartoonist, graphic novelist and author Raymond Briggs. His international best-selling books included Father Christmas, Fungus the Bogeyman, The Snowman and When the Wind Blows, all of which were successfully adapted for the screen. An endearingly curmudgeonly character, Raymond died in 2022 at the age of 88. My interview with him took place at his home in Sussex in 1998, not long before the release of another of his brilliant books, Ethel and Ernest, A True Story, which was about his mother and father. Why have you chosen to write a book about your parents? Well, I mean, no disrespect, but why would you think that, that would be of great interest to the people, as it were, that, that read your books? <laughs> no, of interest to them, it's of interest to me. That's why I did it. I mean, it's why you do anything. Don't think about who it's going to interest at the time. Just get on with doing it in order to uh, remember it all and put it all down. Hmm. Is it like a biography of them, then? Yes, yes, strip cartoon biography. Called what? Ethel and Ernest. <laughs> Has <laughs> it been a great labour of love for yeah, you? Fantastic labour, about three bloody years. I'm sick to death of it. Well, it's all gone in now. I went in in January, I think. Yes, I think it's quite interesting. How would you describe your upbringing in, in Wimbledon? Was it a magical childhood? Because one imagines it was. No, not in the least magical. Just ordinary. I don't know. It was perfectly happy because my parents were happily married and we stayed in the same house all the time. There's nothing magical about it, no, nothing particularly interesting, I don't think. It was just ordinary suburban childhood and the war. It's the biggest memory of it, and going away to be evacuated in Dorset with my two aunts. Well, one of them was an aunt, the other was just a friend of hers, I suppose. But that was the main thing, the country, and just going to school. Nothing magical at all. <laughs> Afraid! Was the wartime in any way an influence on the fact that you later wrote When the Wind Blows about the threat of another war? Yeah, I think it may have been. I mean, the main thing was the Dimbleby programme that came on the night before that caused that to happen. I had a, a television crew here the day after a Dimbleby programme and um, we were all talking about it. And uh, one of them said, uh, Oh, there's your next book, Raymond. As a joke, of course, being the last thing I might be expected to do. And so... Um, that started me thinking of it, so I did it in the end. Are you known as Raymond by everybody, or does it, did your parents call you Ray? Blimey, I don't remember. My father never used my name at all, I don't think. He used to call me Boise or something dreadful. No, Raymond, I suppose. I really don't remember. <laughs> you were an only child, weren't mm. you? Were you happy being an only child, or did you wish you had other people around you? No, I don't think I ever thought about it. I mean, I... I Got all the characteristics of an only child, sort of selfish and self-absorbed and prefer being on my own and all that. Don't like sharing. Dead keen on privacy and everything. So, no, I didn't think about the joy of having brothers and sisters at all. No. Mm. Because sometimes when people hear about some kids having imaginary friends and things, were you a terribly over-creative person as a youngster? No, I don't think so. I don't remember that. I don't remember being particularly creative or having an imaginary friend or anything either. certainly don't remember it, no. You often talk about in interviews about your parents and you have a lot of memories of them and things like that. Mm. Were you very close to them? Yes, I think so. I was quite close to my parents and still am, really. 
I've got all their pictures up and I painted their picture on a cupboard door in there recently to fill up the awful space left by MDF or whatever it's called. Well, you've explained about your appreciation of your parents quite a bit in, in your work as well. Mm. It's almost like a hero worship of them. Would that be correct, do you think, or is that oh, going no. too far? Oh, yes, much too far. No, I didn't hero worship them at all. They had lots of faults, uh, as everybody does, but I, I was very fond of them, of course. But they weren't heroic or anything. My dad just was ordinary working chap. And my mum was very... They're both hard-working, both very sort of straightforward people of their generation, not very well-educated, terribly obedient to authority, and very... My mum was very sort of class-conscious and a bit probably snobbish, quite pleased that I was going to be middle-class when I got into the grammar school and so on, but not in any offensive way. But she was just socially ambitious, I suppose, in a way which my father wasn't. So how do you explain the remaining fondness for them, the, the exceptional fondness you have for them? Well, that's normal, isn't it? <laughs> I thought, I'd only discovered not long ago that not everyone likes their parents. I thought everybody did. I thought all parents loved their children and all children loved their parents. I've since discovered that's not the case. A lot of people can't stand them and actually dislike one another, which was quite a shock to me, really. Mm. Was illustrating or writing in any form in your family, in your blood at all? No, not at all. They're all working people for generations, as far as I know. No one was doing anything highbrow or working class. Most of the older generation were servants, as most people were in those days. In 1914, there were more female domestic servants than any other job in the country, which is amazing. More female domestic servants than steel workers or miners or dockers or anything. So the whole whole of my mum's family, men and women, were servants, I think. Where did your interest from drawing come or illustrating or whatever? Was that something you just started doodling when you were in the classroom one day, or what happened? Well, nothing special in that either. I don't think I used to write letters to my mum and dad when I was evacuated and put drawings on them, but then all kids do that, I think. If kids write letters anymore, they probably don't. They send emails, I suppose. And I just found I wanted, when I was about 10 or 13, to be a, wanted to be a cartoonist. So I had this interest in line drawing rather than colour and humorous thing and related to text. You know, it had to be some kind of words with it as well. So the essence of what I later did, it was all present then, writing humour and um, things in line and for commercial purposes. So that was decided incredibly early, really. Did you ever dream or hope to do a book or any kind of project that would establish you? No, not in that time. When I was young and that age school, I wanted to be a a punch-type cartoonist. That was the height of my ambition, was to get something into what punch was the highest-level thing at the time. My God, it's gone downhill now. My Mm. God, the unbelief. I couldn't believe it when I saw it the other day looks like the bloody sun in magazine form. And uh, that was the thing I dreamt about doing. I used to write to um, established cartoonists and ask them for originals and things, and I've still got one or two of those. So that was my ambition then. What sort of books did you read as a child? What did you get entranced by? Didn't read books much at all, actually. Didn't like books. Didn't have many. And remember being slightly disappointed when I got one, when you got that parcel and you felt along the edge and there was that hollow edge. You thought, oh, my God, it's a book. 
um, when you were really wanting a sort of toy or something, I suppose. Yes, I know I didn't have any colossal... I liked the William books when I was the right age. And remember killing myself with laughter about those. I think they're absolutely brilliant and sort of collect them now, really. Did anybody ever tell you when you were a child that you would be special one day, that you'd do something which would be noticed by lots of people? No, thank God. No, I didn't have any... Uh, Why do you say Fortune-telling type <laughs> rubbish. <laughs> well, I don't believe in that anyway, so... No, I didn't, don't remember anything like that. So you say you don't believe in it. Do you, do you explain it through just sheer hard work or luck, or, or how do you explain your tremendous success? Well, I don't think it's been tremendous. It's been very good. I've been very lucky. I think it's mostly luck and, and hard work. You can't do it without hard work, obviously. But it was luck coming around at the right time. I went to the grammar school in 1944 when the Education Act came in. 1944 Education Act came in at the same time, and that brought about free education, and we had to pay the first two terms at the grammar school, and then it became free, so that was luck. And luck that I had the ability to be able to draw things out of my head, I discovered at art school which is the the essence of illustration. And then luck, starting in the 60s, when there was a revolution in colour printing and uh, four-colour litho came in and made picture books and things much cheaper and more possible to do. Up to then, there wasn't an awful lot of colour work about. And so there was a big revolution in colour printing, plus the libraries were financed in those days that they're not financed now, and you had a more or less guaranteed sale. Um, if you did a book that was reasonably successful, there were 10,000 public libraries in the country, and you more or less almost had a guarantee that 10,000 libraries would buy the thing. And if you could co-edition that with America, and Americans took, say, 10,000, we took 5,000, you had an edition without having to worry about the bookshops. Nowadays it's quite the other way around. You've got to get into the bookshops if you're going to get anywhere. You've enchanted millions of people the world over with your Christmas stories of Father Christmas and the Snowman. Were Christmases for your, in your own childhood very magical? No, not particularly. <laughs> Negative to all these questions, you see. <laughs> no, nothing special. I mean, it's always wonderful when you're a kid. And I was probably spoilt and had more than most kids had. I remember we hung up a pillowcase, not a stocking, which says it all. My mother and father used to hang up stockings and get an orange and a nut and a tiny little tiny things you know but of course more prosperous times I suppose I I was uh, fairly spoilt and had quite a load of stuff but I can't remember anything particularly wonderful about Christmases really I was spoilt by my dad not being there because milkman used to work Christmas day in those days had to get up stupendously early to get done by lunchtime to come home for the dinner so we never went away for Christmas because he was never um, finished in time did you ever go on your dad's milk float with him? Did he ever take you on his rounds? Oh, yes, all the time. Yes, I used to help him on the round rather reluctantly. I didn't really like doing it, actually. It was pretty boring work, and I didn't like the, where it was or the kind of people that were there or anything. I can't say I enjoyed it much, but I felt I ought to help get him so that he could get done earlier. I think I'm right in saying you stuck your dad's initials on the number plate of, of Father Christmas's sleigh or something. Yes. Did your dad's milk rounds inspire you to 
think about Father Christmas's rounds giving out the presents at Christmas time? Well, I just thought the jobs were rather similar. I mean, he goes round in the cold and dark delivering stuff to people's houses and in those days the outdoors was much dirtier than it is now because of all the smoke from chimneys and so on. He used to come in with his hands absolutely black, quite literally black, because there was a coating of soot on practically everything out of doors in the 40s and 50s. I just thought it was a similar similar kind of job, that's all. Lonely and boring and repetitive and <laughs> dirty and... Uh, Did your dad enjoy it, though? Yes, I think he was potty about it. Yeah, he was offered promotion once or twice and didn't take it because it, he'd have lost the round of meeting the people. Mm. He'd have been stuck in an office... Um, I've just done a book about my parents now and uh, made that very point. My mum always saying, aren't you going to ever be promoted? And He didn't want to be stuck in a tin shed all day adding up figures. He'd rather be out in the fresh air. How does it end? Well, them dying, how else does anything end? <laughs> they end up dead, of course. Maybe we know when they died and how they died? Are we allowed to know that? No, they died in... Both died in 73, different things. Mum died in January, my father died in September. 71, sorry, my wife died in February 73. A very jolly time that was. Mm. Yeah, there we go. Did it change you drastically, having all that tragedy in your life at that time? Yes, made me even more miserable and depressed than I normally am, if that's possible. Yes, that was the main thing. It loses a lot of fun because when you have a good bit of news, you know, there's no one to tell it to exactly. I mean, you've got friends, of course. I'm not lonely. But you can't go galloping round to your friends saying, oh, I've sold such and such a book or I've got a commission or something because they're usually in the same field and it looks like showing off or something. Whereas you can go and tell your mum and your dad and they're always delighted if you've had some piece of good news, you know. So it's an awful empty thing, that really, once they're gone. Mm. You've had most of your success since then. Has it been mm. a great source of disappointment to you that you couldn't share it with them? Yes, that's a pity. I always think they missed some of the best. Because the year they died, or the year Jean died, rather, is um, the year Father Christmas came out when all the relatively big successful things started. That was the first time television came to the house and all that. And my mum would have bored everyone to death with it all, of course. Well, Raymond's been on the television, you know. So, we were spared that. Would you like them to see what you've done about them with uh, Ernest and Ethel? Yeah, I hope, yes. I would have liked them to see that. I, I, I didn't do anything too private in it. I made it a rule not to put anything in that I wouldn't have done if they'd been alive. You know, I put bits in originally about their sex life and so on, which um, I uh, decided not to because I wouldn't have said that if they'd been alive, so I didn't think I ought to put it in when they're dead. Things of that sort. Do you feel in a way that they're still around you, that they're still with you, looking over you? No, no, not at all. But, well, not in any ghostly sense. I mean, uh, only in my own mind, of course. Do you not believe in life after death? No, I don't think so. Really, what do you think happens then? <laughs> Nothing. Really? Pain it. and suffering and then conk. I can't believe your view of it is that bleak. Yeah, it is, absolutely. Well, I mean, I can't imagine that uh, anything goes on. It's too ridiculous, really. So what's the point of life, then? God knows. Really? <laughs> <laughs> what's the point of anything? When was your first success, would you say? What was your breakthrough, and what did that mean to you? 
Well, I won the Kate Greenaway medal, I think it's called, yes, in 1966. That was the big thing at the time. That was good. That meant you could do, be sort of recognised in the kiddie book world. And then the next big thing was Father Christmas, which was a, an enormous success at the time and uh, would have been a film earlier if people had... Um, oh, it was an awful muddle about the film rights and so on, but... Uh, didn't get them back for about 20 years and um, it was all handled badly by the publisher so that was yes that was a big big thing it meant you could go on doing other books your own books and realize you could do your own books and make a living at that and not have to do um, silly commissions and things how surprised were you when you became successful well you're always surprised because you always think with these things that no one's going to be interested you do them for your own sake and you often usually do think, well, no one's going to read this. Who's going to want to read this? I felt that about this Ethel and Ernest book. It's only being done for my own interest. I can't say my own amusement. And who on earth is going to want to read it? And Fungus the Bogeyman, I thought, was terribly repulsive and depressing and mucky and complicated and boring and so on. And yet, of course, it was very successful. And I've been today up there signing... 15 massive documents about the televising of that. Great, you know, contracts over an inch thick. And that's been going on for four years. Negotiate, not me negotiating, but my agent negotiating that. It'll be a disaster, I think, anyway. Americans making it in Canada. Can't imagine anything worse. Do you not have any more control over it than that, though? I mean, if you don't want it to go to America, surely you can put your foot down oh, and say Oh, I don't so. mind where it goes, I mean... <laughs> Uh, there was a, a one time Fungus was got terribly excited because Terry Gilliam was going to direct it Neil Innes and Terry Jones were on the writing team Michael Palin put up the money for a these are all my heroes these people mm. despite them being younger than me um, Palin put up the money for the um, pilot pilot film mm. and I went up and watched Terry Gilliam directing it for a day and uh, there were endless, all the usual conferences and meetings and tripe, and then nothing came of it. Typical film world. So I did get excited about that. Gilliam came down here. It was tremendous. And then it all fizzles out, as films always do. You said that you don't expect people to read your books, so you initially just wrote them as like a hobby, did you? Or I mean, you drew them as a hobby as well? Well, not as a hobby exactly, because you hope to make money with it, but you don't tailor it for a market, you just do it how you want it to be and hope for the best sometimes you don't even know it's a, whether it's a children's book or an adult book really not until it's done and then somebody says oh well this is a bit too adult for 10 year olds and you say oh well is it is it for 10 year olds you didn't know that at the time and then when it's done you, some adjustments have to be made in the light of whether it's a children's book or not do you ever try your books out on anyone do you no, have never. any never but you never consider that? Have you not got any young kids around that you would...? Oh, plenty, but I wouldn't do that. Why is that? No point. Well, I mean, it's only their opinion, isn't it? I mean, they're mm. likely to be as wrong as right. And uh, why should they know more about it than me? I've been doing it longer than they know anything about. Mm. They don't know what I want. They might say they like it or they don't like it. They'd probably say they like it out of politeness. Mm. Did you ever have a hunch that any, like like the snowman particularly, would be a huge success? No, never. Never know what things are going to be. Don't want to talk about the snowman. 
sick to death of talking about it. Has it been overdone, do you think? Well, yeah, I've just sick of... I wrote a whole screed up there, pinned on the wall, saying I'm never going to speak about it again. It's been going on for 20 years. Mm. I can't say any more about it. Can I just ask you about... In fact, it's televised every mm. year. It's become mm. as much part of the Christmas scene as The Sound of Music and mm. The Great Escape and everything. Is that a source of embarrassment to you or great pride? Neither. It's just a fact of life. I don't think about it anymore. Mm. Do you not think about it to the extent you wish you'd never created it? Oh, no, I don't hate it. I'm very pleased about it and the fact that it was successful and the fact that so many people like it, but I don't want to talk about it. Do you get mail from all over the world and people mm. write you letters and mm. things? Yes, I got 500 letters from Japan, exactly 500. They sent them off in two blocks of 250 each, an inch thick, which I can't possibly reply to. That was because of an exhibition in Japan at the moment. And they give people a bit of A4 paper at the exhibition, I think, and they all mm. write these kids, and adults too, funnily enough, write all this stuff, Japanese in particular. The snowman is huge in Japan. I've even got my signature going up men's legs on socks. Unbelievable. And everything you can think of has got a snowman version there to a almost absurd extent, really. But then they're like that about everything. It's not just my thing. How much control do you have over that industry? Do you have your own company which sorts out the merchandising? No, I don't have a company. I have an agent who handles the merchandising. And um, they see to it all. It's a huge concern. I don't even see the stuff until it arrives here. I don't approve designs or anything because you'd never be done if you started that. I mean, great boxes of junk come here come here full of, um, you know, the latest thing, towels, electric fires, electric fans rather, not fires. Um, everything you can think of. Sheets, pillowcases, socks, towels, toothbrushes, clocks, alarm clocks, jewellery. Oh, God. Just unbelievable. Can I just go back to the fan mail you receive and everything else? Mm. Do you get sack loads every week or no, how no, does no, it... No, 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 not sack loads, but... Um, Leaving out these absurd Japanese things, just a few weeks, that's all. But, and do they come from all over the world, from kids or adults or what? Mm. Oh, kids mostly, and adults, autograph collectors, and uh, the thesis writers is the biggest bane. I don't deal with them anymore. I just write a photocopied thing saying I can't deal with that. Endless, enclose a list of about 20 or 30 questions, you know, which you were asked generations ago. I've said it in a and one of the copy things I said. Now, I was answering these identical questions before you were born. You know, it just gets a bit much, like all these things. How do they get your address, these people? Or do they just say oh, Raymond Briggs? publisher, usually. Yeah. Oh, I see, yes. Yeah. And sometimes they just put down the snowman author Sussex or something like that, and even that gets here. That's quite frightening, isn't it? <laughs> it's a bit... Well, it's even more frightening, these mm. bloody things, when you phone up about something nowadays and... They ask your, you know, a complete stranger, like an insurance company or something like that, or cars or something. And they say, can we have your postcode, please? And you give them that, and then bang, up comes, they say, oh, you're Western Underhill Lane, and so on. Mm. Complete stranger, you're sort of taped. I don't really like that much, actually. That's could be another book for you. (laughs) (laughs) Big brother. (laughs) Tell me some of the things that people have written to you or said to you in appreciation of your work. God, I can't remember any. Any really touching ones, particularly from children? 
No, not really that I can remember. I've got a lousy memory. Maybe some of them are quite touching, but there's nothing... Uh, no, I can't remember anything much. Do local people know that you live here and have you lived here quite a long time and they knock on the door and so on? Yeah, some stupid people knock with a bundle of books and expect me to sign them there and there and that kind of thing, which rather annoys me. Um, other people expect you to sell books on, on demand. Other people expect you to give them them. Give, we've got someone coming and we'd like to give him your snowman book. Can you <laughs> supply it? You know, you think, fuck me. What a fucking bookshop. It's unbelievable. Imagine it with any... It's a, it's a curious thing. You wouldn't get it with any other profession, you know. You wouldn't ring up a solicitor and say, oh, can you write us a covering letter? We're thinking of applying for mm. something. You'd get a bill for 150 quid before you could turn round. You don't sound like a huge fan of the snowman. Have you had any insulting comments about the snowman yourself? No, not... Well, I mean, there have been lots of jokes. It was uh, Dawn French and... Jennifer Saunders took the piss out of it on television, so did Griff Rees-Jones and um, Mel Smith. How I thought it was wonderful. I didn't see those. You summed them up. What oh, well, um, I forget how it began, Mel Smith's thing, and they said, oh, is that bloody thing? And the music comes on or something. <laughs> yeah, that bloody thing, and he gets a great shotgun. And <laughs> <laughs> that was good. <laughs> wonderful. And then uh, Dawn... French and Jennifer Saunders in that funny little room and then that, where now those two women have this funny kind of empty bedsit that they share, don't yeah, they, in that scene. Yeah. And Dawn French starts hopping about and on the bed and whatnot. And, What's that thing? That thing on the telly? I forget how that ended now. It's years ago. But it's wonderful. She's this great fat lady hopping about, waving her arms. Brilliant. How do you feel when you hear that music? Well, I'm tired of it now, of course, because you get it in all the department stores at Christmas time. And, but it's very good. I mean, it's only through repetition you think, oh, God, not again, because it's on all these bloody toys, these Japanese toys, you know, and you open the lid mm. and up comes the music, or you open a pencil box and the music starts, or that's uh, rather painful. Do you like Christmas? No, I loathe it, actually. I'd like to go away and get away from it all. I, I find it worrying and oppressive and takes up you know you're always worried about whether you've done the right thing and what to do with various relations at Christmas which I haven't, don't have to worry now because I haven't got any left but there was always that problem of having to see people that you didn't particularly want to see which <laughs> everyone has Do you like receiving and giving presents? No, not really No, I'd rather not I, I like presents if they're jokes, if the people buy silly things, you know, something idiot, idiotic that costs 50p and makes you laugh, like that stuff upstairs that Helen, my friend, gives me with that statue of myself and fart gas and things like that. But heavy presents costing 50 quid on what I find a bit oppressive, really. Mm. But you give presents, presumably. Yeah, well, you have to, don't you? That's even mm. worse, because then you have to fork out as well. <laughs> to give copies of your books <laughs> 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 no, God forbid. Well, except to, yes, possibly relations and things. Mm. More distant relations, not two friends or anything. Is there an ideal Christmas that you think about? Is there a dream Christmas that you'd like to have? Yes, I'd like to just get on a plane and go right out the country and get away from it and forget it exists, quite honestly, yes. Because it's all made far too heavy. It begins weeks before you get the holly and stuff in the supermarkets in before Guy Fawkes Day now. You get Christmas Eve things in Tesco's in late October. 
which is ridiculous. Do you ever watch The Snowman at Christmas time? No, never. <laughs> How much of yourself do you put into your characters? Don't know, really. Well, when you're drawing something, you have to be it. That's the thing. It's a funny psychological thing. I only thought that fairly recently, that it's a double psychological thing. That's why a lot of people can't do it, even art students, because you, when you're doing it, you have to be the person, sort of act it. You know, if you've got someone running cheerfully, you've got to feel it when mm -hmm. you're drawing it. And yet you've got to be looking at it from outside, seeing, oh, yes, well, the head would be foreshortened and the leg would be foreshortened, and this foot, we'd see the sole of the foot. So you're in two psychological places at once, which is quite interesting, really, because you've got to act it like an actor, and yet at the same time be the director photographer standing over there saying, oh yes, we'll light it from the top, so his shadow is cast, and so his feet, you can see his feet aren't on the ground as he's running and so on. So it's odd, quite odd, that. Which of your characters would you say is the most autobiographical? Oh, blimey. Don't know that any of them are really. Can't. Uh, don't know really. I hadn't thought of it in those terms. Grumpy enough for being Father Christmas, I suppose. And general middle-aged depression of fungus. That's both me, I suppose, really. In one interview, you described yourself as a miserable old sod. Why, why do you describe yourself as miserable and grumpy? Do you really think you are? Yes, absolutely. Very depressive type, and uh, getting worse. Hmm. Why? Why do you think you are? Have you always been like that? Um, probably. I think it gets worse with old age, of course, as the future gets ever shorter. Yes, I think I'm always fairly depressive, really. They say that some of the best comedians are depressors. Would you say that you fit into that? Yeah, I'm not a comedian, but... Uh, some of your work is very comic. Some of it's comic, yeah, slightly. I suppose that's true up to a point. It's a bit of a cliché, but... They do say that about comics, don't they, that they are depressive types. Do you see the world as bleakly as some of your pictures indicate? Yes, I think so. I think it's awful, for the most part. What's awful about it? <laughs> well, the obvious things. I mean, they're digging up bodies in um, Bosnia at the moment, aren't they? Thousands of them. And the families in Africa and... Oh, it just goes on all the time. I used to think, that's the terrible thing. When you're young, you think, ah, oh, we've cracked it now, we've got over the war, and there won't be any more wars, we've got a Labour government, um, it's all going to be fair shares and good education, and no more wars, and, uh, and then, of course, you realise it just goes on exactly the same. In fact, things get worse because the technology gets more powerful. And then India's exploded its bomb... And Pakistan's going to do theirs, and on it goes. Well, those are all the bad things. There's lots of good things going on in the world, aren't there? You're not a Christian, are you? No, you no, look a bit Christian-y. Definitely a, a, a reject of that. I'll tell you about it later. But, I mean, do you not look to the positive things that are going on in the world, rather than all those... Such things? as, name one. Oh, there's the Cannes Film Festival. Oh, God. Going on and what do you enjoy doing? Oh, I don't actually know. Well, second-hand bookshops and... Country walks and recently fishing. I've taken up one of yours. Okay, I'm having doubts about that now. Actually, no, just silly things like that. Do you enjoy your success? Do you enjoy being famous? Well, half and half. I mean, I think it's nice. It's reassuring to think you haven't wasted your time. I'm not that famous anyway, but um, it's got its good and bad sides. I'd hate to be properly famous like Terry Wogan and so on, where you lose your privacy.
I mean, it must mm. be dreadful. I don't know how people stand that. You can quite understand why people go mad. And how even Princess Di, who I've got not much sympathy for, I do sympathise for her with that. Where you can't put your nose outside the door without being recognised. You imagine Terry Wogan, you can't walk into a pub and have a drink mm. without everybody in there saying, Oh, look, that's Wogan, look, Wogan, mm. you know. But then again, he did sort of want to be, you know, he chose to be on TV and radio. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. I suppose he did, but it still must be appalling. You have a nice sort of fame where it's appreciation rather than Mm. immediate recognition. Not getting recognised, that's the great thing, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I've never been, well, once or twice recognised in public, but dread that, it's awful. I just want to ask you, without getting too personal, but in the interviews I've read that you have a lady friend in another village Mm. that you are Mm. together, but you live separately. Is that still the case? Yes, that's it, yes. And do you think you'll ever get married again? or No. Why is that? Don't see the point. (laughs) What do you mean you don't see the point? Don't see uh, why anyone does it, unless you're religious. What's the point? And even people who've got children uh, don't get married nowadays. Just makes uh, friends who've been married and try to undo it so you can get married in a day you try bloody getting it undone my god goes on for years people have nervous breakdowns it's oh dreadful got two friends in the throes of that at the moment never get married for christ's sake are we allowed to know anything about your lady friend no, yeah, no i don't want to talk about that all right fair enough can we talk about when the wind blows? Then? No, I don't want to talk about that. Oh, please. No, I've done too much. Well, okay, just a couple very, of just questions very, I, I, I can't stand it right. anymore. All right. Well, I mean, basically, well, it certainly set the um, the world thinking very seriously about nuclear war and well, everything else. was at that time, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Do you feel that it was just fantastic timing from that point of view? No. Well, I mean, just that everyone was very conscious of it at the time. There were lots of programmes about it, and um, that's what made me do it. But um, it was a very live issue at the time. Died out of it now, of course. The couple featured in that, was that effectively your parents? Mm. Well, it's based on them, but they were made more simple and more ignorant than my parents would have been because they had to be that dim to um, obey the government instructions and so on. But, uh, yeah. They were very amusing, those characters, at certain stages, Mm. certainly. Do you always try and... Do you have that sort of great British ability to look at humour out of black times? Well, I don't know. It just struck me as funny. The whole nuclear thing has got its funny side. It's so ridiculous. And the absurdity is it throws up. It's a, it's a born for humour, like um, my favourite film, the Kubrick. Um, um, Peter Sellers was the... Oh, yeah, d- wonderful. Strange Love. Strange Love, yeah, of course, yes. yes. Like that, yeah, it? yeah. Do you feel that there's still a great nuclear threat, or do you think that's gone now? Well, the initial threat of Russia aiming rockets at us as we sat there with these things aimed at us 24 hours a day, hopefully that isn't, doesn't apply now. I don't really know, actually. The worst thing now is the mess in Russia and the fact they've got all these decaying submarines and terrific crime in the country and people who can get hold of the stuff. That's terrifying. I mean, my lady's daughter works in Ireland in the Children of Chernobyl project where they run this whole charity to look after all the poor kids who suffer from the Chernobyl thing, most of whom are dying of um, thyroid cancer and whatnot. And they have them over for holidays in Ireland to recuperate and whatnot. So that huge threat hangs over everything in Russia because they haven't got the organisation or the money to um, deal with it properly. 
Your book really brought the whole nuclear issue to the minds of all sorts of people that perhaps wouldn't even have thought about it before. Do you think, in a way, you did your bit to help avert the nuclear crisis? No. God, no, I wouldn't think so. No, it was it, it was good. It was I was most proud of the radio play. I was pleased for my one and only radio play. It won an award, and I was quite proud of that because it's not illustrating at all. It's pure writing, and there's a stage play all over the place and a film, so it was good that it went into all these different media. Are there many projects that you start and you never finish, or have all of them come to fruition? Oh, God knows, hundreds you don't ever do. I mean, do about one in ten, I would think, because you have loads of... used to get loads of ideas, don't get so many now, and then you start doing them and realise they're boring or they're not viable commercially or someone's already done it or... 101 reasons for not continuing. Are there any other serious issues that you would like to have tackled or would still like to tackle? No, I haven't thought of anything. No, just when things turn up, you something prompts you to do a serious topic. I did this thing about the Falklands War. That was the last thing I did anything serious about. Have we finished now? No, no, no. It's just a few more minutes, have we made? Sorry about this. <laughs> thought you were switching it off no, and no. I could go. Oh, sorry. Is it that horrible for you? <laughs> Do you really dislike all the things such as interviews and so on? Do you hate Mm. all the trappings that come with Mm. being well-known? Yes, Yes, I do, getting increasingly. I mean, you like it at first because it's flattering, but when you've done it a thousand times, you get sick to death of it. No offence to you or anybody, but it's just just like old age. You just get bored with uh, things because you've done them 50,000 times before. Not that uh, there's anything bad about it in itself. People are always very nice, very polite, and... And uh, one shouldn't grumble, but it's, it's like all fan letters. I mean, you get rather bored with those, actually. Although they're flattering, don't get bored with little kids writing. That's sweet when the young kids write, but these things when the teacher gets a whole class to write and organises it, that gets a bit tiresome, really. Would you like to have had kids of your own? No, not particularly. never wanted any. And uh, always madly tried to avoid it. But then when my wife got pregnant once, we all got excited, as people do, and started looking at prams and things. But she lost it anyway, and we heaved a sigh of relief. Um, No, I've never seen it as anything particularly wonderful. I like seeing little kids around. I mean, my lady's son's got three super little, two girls and a boy, and um, they're absolutely delightful to look at and play with for a bit and then get the hell out, you know, and leave them to mop up. I don't want it 24 hours a day. I think because of the fantastic stories you've written, largely for children, people imagine you to be a real softie for kids, but... Mm. No, I, well, I don't think you can generalise. I mean, they're just people, aren't they? It's like saying, do you like 40-year-olds or something? Mm. You can't classify people by age. Some of them are charming and some of them are absolutely just detestable. And um, you can't wait to get away from them. There's nothing inherently wonderful about children as such, though they do, obviously, the main charm is the fantastic things they say and their wonderful view of the world, which is so different to ours. The way a four-year-old sees the world is just so extraordinary, you know, fascinating. When did you move out here into the countryside and how did you feel about it? Oh, we tried to live in London, as I said, but couldn't afford it, and then we found for the same money we could buy a virtual slum in Wandsworth and Wimbledon and 
Putney. This is you and your wife. Right? Yeah, in '63, mm. three thousand five hundred was the most I could afford. Sounds a joke now, which bought you the rock bottom. I'm literally slums. I was amazed they were there in uh, southwest London, and for that price in Burgess Hill, you could get a brand new house on a housing estate with, you know, everything immaculate. So obviously we did that, and it's also easier to get mortgages on new houses. Why did you choose this area, though? Well, I was teaching at Brighton, so we tried to get a house in Brighton, but that was, again, mostly old property and difficult to get mortgages on that if you're self-employed. Building societies hate self-employed people, let alone self-employed artists, and uh, it was difficult. So we went to this place in Burgess Hill, uh, had a very nice house there, really. And then coming back on a walk one day, we happened to turn, waiting for the pubs to open on a Sunday, too early for the pubs, so we thought we'd drive round for a bit, waiting for seven o'clock, and turned right at the bottom of the hill and came along here and saw this sale sign, and thought, oh God, we'll never be able to afford this area, it's bound to be pretty posh. And it was 5,400, and our little housing estate house was worth 4,500. So it was only a £900 gap, which even in those days wasn't insuperable. Mm. So that was 30 years ago. So you bought this house 30 years ago. Mm. Do you think you'll always live here? Probably. It's a bit late to move now at 64. Mm. (laughs) Yes, I can't see any point in moving. Would you describe yourself as eccentric? I don't think so, but eccentrics never do. Um, people think I'm eccentric, but I can't think of anything that's eccentric. I mean, collecting electric fires is slightly eccentric, but not really. People collect all sorts of things. I can't think of anything I do that's remotely odd. I mean, everybody's odd when you analyse what they do. I mean, oh, I can't mention names around here, but there's plenty of people <laughs> along here who I regard as um, eccentric, borderline mad, quite honestly. It's quite a lonely existence, writing and illustrating, Mm. but you say you're not lonely. No, no, not at all. I did teach at Brighton for one day a week for about, God, 26 years, I think. That was mainly uh, not out of loneliness, but just to make a change to get out of the house and meet people and have a day away from the desk and away meeting um, quite interesting young people doing similar sort of work. I enjoyed that. It got very bureaucratic, that's why I packed it up. When I interviewed Michael Bond last week, he said he really believes that Paddington exists and he gets great comfort out of that. Do you ever believe that your your characters exist or do you ever feel comforted by them? Good God, no, what a funny idea. He's got the same agent. That's how that agent started, working for Paddington, a merchandising chap. That's how the firm grew up. No, I don't think they exist. God, what an idea. I can't be serious. <laughs> no, God, I can't imagine that. Are people forever expecting you to draw little pictures for them when they meet oh, you? Oh, yes. Yes, I don't do that. Absolutely not. Too exhausting. <laughs> so you've now finished this book about your parents, which is coming out in September. Mm. What happens after that? How far ahead are you planned? I've not planned anything. I've uh, retired, you see. <laughs> I'm not... Uh, I haven't done anything much since then, actually. I've doodled with two or three odd things that have been around, because you've usually got ideas that have been around for years that you haven't done. But um, I may not do any. How would you like to be remembered one day? (laughs) What do you want? What I want on my tombstone? Well, the best thing that I'm having on my tombstone is what um, 
my friend's uh, son's little girl said recently. I wrote it down, stuck it on the wall of my room up there. Oh. She said she was exactly three or six months. I was in the middle of lunch one day, and she looked up and said, "Raymond is not a normal person," <laughs> which for three and a half year old I thought was wonderful. It's about the best compliment I've ever had. I'm going to have that on my tombstone. Does it bother you that you'll always be remembered for the snowman and when the wind blows particularly? No, it doesn't bother me what I'm remembered for. It doesn't bother me one way or the other. Would you like to be remembered full stop? It doesn't bother me because I shan't be there. I shan't be aware of being remembered or not. (laughs) (laughs) This is Peter Jonathan Robertson. I hope you've enjoyed my 1998 interview with Raymond Briggs. If you'd like to comment on this or any of my other interviews in the PJ archive, you can find or follow me on Twitter at PeterJonathanR2.